Okay, so if you would, cursing of the fig tree, if you would stand for reading of the Word of God. Now, as you know, we're in the book of Matthew, and the book of Matthew is teaching us how to live as kingdom of God believers in a world that is the antithesis of God. Most people are enmeshed and immersed in the kingdom of darkness, and we have come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light the moment we believed in Jesus Christ, and now we are expected to live differently. And Jesus is going to be talking about the believer being fruitful, not fruitless. So we'll pick up our teaching today in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said, it, said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This is the word of God. Thank you, Father, for your word. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us today. Everyone in here. We'll hear from God today something special from God to them personally. Receive what God has from you today. And what you receive, put into action. We are not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Oh, Lord, have your way here today in this group of people. Speak through me to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And every week we get closer to the king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. And hopefully he's coming for you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, last week was Easter Sunday and we talked about the resurrection and we talked about the cross and that sort of thing. And we're in a section of Matthew that's leading up to Easter Sunday. We went through Palm Sunday where Jesus received his kingship. Palm Sunday. And on Monday he was in the temple. And in the temple he cast out the money changers, those people that were buying and selling in the temple. Two entities were guilty, the buyers and the sellers. The temple was being used inappropriately, not for its prescribed purpose. And Jesus said, this is my house, and my house will be called a house of prayer. He's quoting the Old Testament, talking about Father's house. Make no mistake, Jesus is equating himself with God. He is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. And what did he do? He cast out these money changers. And remember that word, that cast out was ekbelo. And it was a strong word. It was a significant word. There was action. There was fervor. There was passion when Jesus was throwing the money changers out of Father's house. And then we use the example that you now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And because the Spirit of God dwells within you, you have the responsibility as a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ to cast out, to ekbelo, to throw out the sin from your life and to live fruitful for Christ. The temple was not being used for its prescribed purpose. The fig tree that we see today, which I believe represents the nation of Israel, it's not being, it is not used for its prescribed purpose. They reneged on their responsibility of telling the world about Jesus. We'll get more into that in just a few minutes. Now, I want you to think about this. The world wants you to stay yoked to it. Be connected to it. Anytime you come out of the darkness into the light, the darkness always wants to pull you back. And you have to determine in your heart, no, I'm a child of the God. I am in a different kingdom. Anybody that God saves is saved to be changed. Changed from the old you to the new you. Conformed to the likeness of Christ. The world glorifies the creation, folks. We glorify the creator. Now, in the Westminster Confession, we have these words. Now, watch what is said here. This is written in 1647. As, as the United States, people in this country, before it became a country, were, were immersed in God. What is the chief end of man? And folks, I'm telling you the truth. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, C.S. Lewis has a view of this. He calls us the Scottish Catechism, says that man's chief end is to glorify God. Let that resonate within your being. That's your whole purpose in life. 
and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him forever. Folks, the Christian life is not a life of drudgery. Oh, oh, it's so miserable being a Christian. We have to do all these things. No, you don't. You have to believe in Jesus and a natural effect of believing in Jesus and following the Lord Jesus will be fruit in your life, will be a changed you, a changed you. There will always be opposition to the changed you, but you must resist the opposition. The world, the flesh, and the devil will entice you to join them. There's a couple of scriptures I want you to remember. Now, Mark, when Mark goes to boot camp, he's not going to be able to select his friends. He's going to have a platoon, and there's going to be some crazy guys in the platoon that are going to want Mark to act crazy, okay? Particularly when they get their first liberty going into town after being in boot camp for a time. 1 Corinthians 15, says this, Bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful who you hang with. Be careful who you hang with. Proverbs 12, 26, The righteous should choose his friends carefully because the way of the wicked will lead them astray. Be careful who you hang with. Be careful what you see. Be careful where you go in your life, who you, what you expose yourself to. And again, 24-7, you're being exposed to all kinds of stuff. Now, I'm, I've made a commitment to myself. But I'm taking a fast on this because I'm addicted to this, and so are you. You won't admit it, but you are addicted to this. And you know you're addicted when you're watching a TV program, and at the same time you've got a podcast that you're listening to here. Now, how in the world can that happen? Addicted to your phone. Be, put it aside. When you're eating dinner, set it aside. Because what's coming here, 99% of it is not good for your spirit. Realize that. So, remember the battle is for control of the mind. And these inputs affect your mind. He who controls the mind controls the person. So make sure you have more godly inputs than worldly inputs. That is not easy. That will take a discerning, specific effort to do that. It won't happen just naturally. This world isn't built that way. Now, this week, we're going to talk about cursing of the fig tree. And what's the cursing all about? What is Jesus referring to? Why is this important to me? And what about all this fruit stuff? Now, I, you know, you're called fruity because you're a Christian. But we look at fruit as being good, not being bad. So the setting is this. It's morning, and Jesus is hungry. And we're going to expand on this Jesus being the God-man. In chapter 21, verse 18. Now, in the morning... Remember, Jesus was in Bethany, and now he's going to be going back to Jerusalem. As he returned to the city, he was hungry. Just makes a specific statement that Jesus was hungry. Jesus experienced things just like us. Jesus, on his trip to Jerusalem, runs into a fig tree that is not productive, not fulfilling its purpose. Now, when you think of non-production, you're not fulfilling your purpose. The temple did not fulfill its purpose. The fig tree did not fulfill its purpose. And I'm going to expound on this over and over that many Christians today are not fulfilling their purpose, not fulfilling their purpose. Jesus is hungry. Jesus is a man as well as God. Now, you need to realize that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. I'm going to show a picture here in just a second about the Trinity. But you must realize he is the God-man. And as a man, Jesus experienced everything like we do. He didn't just skip through life and not skin his knee or have some bad things happen to him. He experienced all the discomfort. He had all the emotions that you have and you go through. He felt pain. He felt rejection. He felt abandonment, disappointment. He felt the sting of death, both in himself and in Lazarus. And when he went into Jerusalem to accept his kingship, remember... He wept over Jerusalem because he knew that the same ones that were saying, Hosanna, save now Jesus, would be saying in a few days, crucify him. And he wept knowing the, the destiny of Jerusalem. Jesus also felt joy and he laughed and he experienced life. He experienced it all just like us. Jesus is God. He is the God man. 
at the incarnation, that means when Jesus came into this world as, as a human, the eternal second person of the Godhead, please know this, the Trinity, God took on humanity. Jesus has two natures, 100% God, 100% man. How that works, I don't know, but that's the truth. Now, I have a picture of the Trinity here, and I think that everyone should have some concept of what the Trinity is. It's a difficult thing to embrace, but the triangle that we've gone over many times will help you. Now, look at the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The triunity of God incorporates the Godhead. This is a complex unity, all of them working in concert together as God. We serve one God, three persons, one God. Now, that is a difficult concept. Maybe this next picture will help you. The overlapping ellipticals. Again, there's an overlap of, of, in, the, in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father certainly is the one that has the, and the order, but there's an overlap for all of them. They are immersed in one another. This unity is like nothing we know of, never having a thought that was contrary to another in the Godhead, always walking in lockstep unity, always walking in lockstep unity. So, Jesus became a man. Why was Jesus becoming a man important to you? Because you have Adam's sin imputed to you. All humans that come into this world, come into this world as sinners separated from God in the kingdom of darkness and need to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. No human was perfect who could die for humanity. Remember, we, we realize in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins, it should die. Eternal separation from God. In Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our rescue. He's the only perfect human that could rescue humanity. No angel could do it because they weren't a human. It had to be a kinsman of ours. It had to be another human. Only Jesus was perfect. Only he could pay our sin debt. Sin, you know, what you need to realize and what we need to realize as people is that God is perfect. God is holy. And sin is egregious to him. It is awful to him. It is reprehensible to him. When everything that God made in the beginning, it was perfect. And remember in Genesis 1, it says, and he created everything and it was very good, perfect. No sin in the creation. And then the fall came and that results in all this that we experience now. Look around you. Look around you. You see this gray hair? This wasn't the original. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. You see some people that are bald. That wasn't how it was supposed to be. You see some people that are limping. Uh, uh, uh. That's not what it was supposed to be like. You have all these things because of sin coming into the world, and sin brought death and destruction and mess into our lives. Jesus is our rescue. We required a perfect human being to die for us. And it can only be the God-man that was perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man to save us from eternal damnation. Damnation. Now, also think about you, who you are in relationship to Jesus. You are special. Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. Those Old Testament people that were looking forward to the cross, he died for them. The, the tribulation saints... He will die for them in the future. But you are a special entity. You are the bride of Christ. And he purchased you out of the slave market of sin. He died for you. You are the bride of Christ. You are special to him. Now, we talked about the Trinity. We talked about Jesus being the God-man. Now, there are some things that you're just going to have to know in Christianity to have a full knowledge and view of who Jesus is. Now, this word that I'm going to throw out, you've heard it before, but we inculcate, teach by repetition, and that is the hypostatic union. Two natures becoming one. It is defined here on the screen this way. The hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is both fully 
human and fully divine God, that there is no mixture or dilution of either nature, and that he is one united person. And this is what you must understand. This is a forever change in who Jesus is. He went from the second person of the Trinity, fully, completely God, to now the God, fully, completely God, man. And that's what he is forever, the God, man. And he did it for us. He did it for us. That's what he did it for, forever state. Jesus is now forever the God-man. Jesus did this voluntarily, and he did it for you. Put your name there if you, if you believed in Jesus Christ. Just say, you died for me, Jesus. You died for me. You, I am the bride of Christ. I am the church. The bride of Christ is a special entity in the plan of God. And like I said, you are special. There is an expectation of the bride. There's an expectation of the bride. What is it? To be fruitful, not to be fruitless, but to be fruitful, to fulfill your purpose, and to be watchful and waiting, loyal and faithful to your bridegroom. Remember, when you believed in Jesus Christ, that word believe, you know what the word is, pastio in the Greek, and it means commit to, put your trust in, your loyalty to, your fidelity to Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is my Lord. And I'm going to be faithful to my bridegroom until he comes for me. So I am to be watchful. I am to be waiting. I'm to have my lamps trimmed with oil, as it says in the parable of the ten virgins. Preparing for the bridegroom's, and watch this, unexpected return. See, we don't know the day or the hour. But folks, I can tell you right now that the season, the season is ripe for Jesus' return. Now, it could be any time, any time. I'm not expecting, look at, I didn't expect to be this old. I thought Jesus would come long ago. I had rapture fever from the 1970s on, okay? I mean, rapture, when you're coming, Lord. But the things are falling in order today like never, never, never before. This, folks, is the season, the technology, the artificial intelligence, all the stuff for the Antichrist is in place now like never in my life. The king is coming, folks. We talked about Jesus being the God-man and the cursing of fruitlessness. Verse 19 through 20, the cursing of the fruitless. And seeing a fig tree by the road. Now, Jesus had all kinds of expectations for this fig tree. He came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no more fruit grow on you ever again Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? The fig tree, the fig tree, when you go to Israel, the fig trees are all over the place. The fig tree is, represents Israel in Scripture. It's expected to be productive. It's expected to be productive. It had a, a mission to follow. The interesting thing about a fig tree the fruit comes on a fig tree before the leaves come on the fig tree. And the leaves were on this fig tree, so they were expected to have at least a, some fruit. It might not have been all ripe and ready to go, but Jesus expected that tree, representing Israel, to have some fruit. Now, I just have a picture here of a fig tree, since we don't see them very often in our lives, but there were just all kinds of fruit, and figs are sweet and delicious and nutritious and that sort of thing. This was a picture of the nation of Israel, fruitful. Jesus, again, was critical of the temple being used in an unfruitful, non-productive way. And he's critical of the fig tree being unfruitful and unproductive. Jesus expects this. The fig tree was not fulfilling its purpose. It looked good. There was no fruit. It was useless. Useless. Now, what did Jesus do to the useless fig tree? He cursed it. Let no more fruit grow on you ever again. Now, again, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. And some people take this verse, let no fruit grow on you ever again, meaning that God is done with the nation of Israel, that he has replaced Israel in his plans with the church. That is not true. That is not true. 
Another interesting thing here is that all the miracles that Jesus did, of all of them that he did, this is the only one of judgment. The only one of judgment. Does this curse, now ask yourself this question, does this curse mean that God is done with Israel? I've already given the answer. You can say a resounding. Okay, let's try that again. Because that was like a pitiful no. Okay. I'll ask the question again for the tape. Does this curse mean that God is done with Israel? No, that's right. He is not done. We do not believe in replacement theology. So what is this cursing all about? Now, you need to realize that Jesus is offering the kingdom. I'm going to mention this a couple times here. He's offered the kingdom to the Jewish people. They have rejected it. This was known by God. This was going to happen. In Genesis chapter 10, when you have the Noah in the, in the table of the nations and that sort of thing, each one of these guys was given a place, the sons of Noah. And they had boundaries. They had, it says specifically, the sons of Noah were separated into their lands. Genesis chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. Instead of being separated into their lands and fulfilling their mandate by God, the same one that Adam had, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, they stayed in Babel and built a ziggurat, a tower, to worship other gods. God did not like that. He came down and confused the languages and forced them to separate into different people groups. He set boundaries. Now, I want you to realize something. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read these words, 32.8. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nation, talking about the sons of Adam and the sons of Noah, the inheritance to the nations as these people went out into different areas to fulfill the mandate of being fruitful and multiply. When the Most High divided the inheritance of the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples. Take a hard stop. God is for borders. Do you hear that? God is for borders. He set up different states and borders. There is a reason for this. God desires that boundaries be made so that mankind cannot gather together and all conspire against God. He has boundaries to keep them separate because together there's more evil than there is with them separated. Separated. So he separated the sons of Adam. He said boundaries for the people according to the number of the children of Israel. And this is the key verse. For the Lord's portion is his people, his people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And Jacob is the place of his inheritance. That's another name for Israel. Jacob's name was Israel, okay? Now, this is significant because I'm going to show you a map that's going to come up here. You haven't seen this map before, but this is the world, and this is Israel. Now, the Lord's portion out of this whole world was his people, this little speck. All the false gods, all the foreign gods, all the demonic spirits, you can have all of this, but my people will dwell here. And from here, these people will impact the world. That was their job. Now, the next picture that's going to come up is you're just going to see the pressure that Israel is on. You've seen this before, this map, of all these hostile nations that are around Israel and this little speck of land out of this whole world is contested. Israel doesn't try to expand into Syria. Israel doesn't try to expand into Egypt or Turkey or Iran or any of these places. Israel's land is right here. They're never expansionist. All they're trying to do is survive here. The only reason they will survive is because God will miraculously protect them. That's why they will surprise. It's not the IDF, the Israel Defense Force. It's not their great air force or their army, which they're very proud of. It'll be God. And you're seeing that more and more today as the world now is turning against the nation of Israel. That is a fact that is happening. God's people had a responsibility. The people of the Jewish people had a responsibility. In Isaiah 42, 6, it says it perfectly. Listen to this. I, the Lord, speaking to the nation of Israel and by extension to Messiah, but Israel, ha have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles. This light to the Gentiles expressed in Isaiah 49, 6 and 60, verse 3. Now, I also want you to remember this. When Jesus said, 
the, the fig tree would be cursed and that sort of thing. Mark adds this little insight. It was dried up from the roots, from the roots, fully dead, fully useless. I believe that Jesus is telling us something here. This won't be in your notes, so just listen here closely. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus had rejected the Messiah. I think this is the generation that he's speaking of. They had rejected their opportunity for the kingdom to come at that time. At that time. The kingdom would be postponed until later the millennial kingdom will be the kingdom that they inhabit. But they will have to go through the tribulation period. Now, this will be in your notes, this next statement. National Israel has been set aside for a time. Now, I'm going to give you some, a confusing phrase here, if you're not already confused. A confusing phrase here, two phrases. It's going to be the time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. There's a difference in these things. The time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. You think this doesn't mean anything. It means a lot. Hold on. Hold on. The, the time of the Gentiles will continue until Messiah returns at his second coming. Now, what is the time of the Gentiles? It's defined in Luke 21, 24. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, the times of the Gentiles, Jerusalem, where the Jewish people are today, has been trampled down by Gentiles. Remember, you have two groups of people, two groups of people in the world. One is Jew in the eyes of God, and the other are Gentiles. Jew or Gentiles, that's the two, two groups. Two groups. The Gentiles have been trampling down Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity, and they will do so until the second coming of Messiah when the millennial reign comes and Jerusalem is in fully occupied and fully under Jewish control. Now, you realize that something special happened in our world. On May 14th, 1948, this nation that had not been a nation in one day, as prophesied by one of the prophets, became a nation, became a nation. However, you must realize that Jerusalem is still trampled down by the Gentiles. There's four quadrants to, to the city of Jerusalem. You have, the, you have the Muslim sector, the Jewish sector, the Armenian sector, and the Christian sector. It's still being trampled down three-fourths by Gentiles. So this is still in effect. The time of the Gentiles is still in effect today. Okay, so that's an important thing to remember. The time of the Gentiles. Now, also realize that Jesus is set aside. He says they're going to be set aside for a time. Paul gives some clarification on this. The setting aside is temporary God is not through with the nation of Israel. Your key verse for that is Romans 11, verse 25 and 26. Now watch what he says. Paul speaking says this. This is a misspelling. We know it. We couldn't correct it. Okay, we're not totally ignorant. But anyway, I do not desire, brethren, talking to the church, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Remember, we heard to, this word was mysterion. And it means something that was not known in the Old Testament, but is known today. It's making it known. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, in part, there are still Jews being saved, not many, but there are some Messianic Jews, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, different than the time of the Gentiles, has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And then he tags on this. From the Old Testament, the deliverer will come out of Zion, that's, that's Israel, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's talking about the, the new covenant that is mentioned in Jeremiah 31, 31, which we won't get into today, okay? So, that is the, that is the promise, not to be ignorant of this mystery about the nation of Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles is further described in Acts 15, 14. So hang with me. Don't drift too far. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for himself. 
God has a plan for massive amounts of Gentiles to be saved, to be part of God's program. Now, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to the 70 weeks of Daniel for the 100th time. And you're going to see this picture for the umpteenth time. But bear with me, it has purpose. So it'll come up, the next slide. As you know, the 70 weeks of Daniel were 70 weeks that were granted to the nation of Israel. These were weak years, 490 years. 69 weeks were fulfilled, 483 years, until Messiah came and was rejected and cut off, killed. That stopped the time for the Jewish people. This age, 2,000 plus years, is called the church age. The church age. This is the bride of Christ. The church age will end at the coming of Messiah. So the fullness of the Gentiles is from Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, until, until Jesus comes back at his second coming. Or excuse me, the rapture. The rapture. Thank you. Somebody whispered that. Was that you, Dennis? That was, that, that was very good. Yes. Rapture. Rapture. The final week, the 70th week, the 7th week, the, the, seventh, the 70th week, is for the Jewish people exclusively. The main reason is the Jewish people. The Jewish people are, 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 are the focus here. They will believe at the very end of the tribulation, actually a few days before the end of the tribulation, and they will believe who Messiah is. Now, more of that in just a second. So, who is the all of Israel that will be saved? There are people like John Hagee that believes that God has a special covenant with the nation of Israel, and they're all automatically saved. That's not true. That's not true. Zechariah helps us with this. There will, be a, there will be a trigger. There will be a trigger that the Jewish people that are believers in Scripture, they will have a trigger to know exactly what they are to do. That trigger is known as the abomination of desolation. Now, most of you that come to church here, you know what that is. The Antichrist is, has an has a image of him set up. The false prophet sets up this image that you must worship the Antichrist, you must take the mark, and that sort of thing. When they see that, when the Jewish people see that, the believing remnant who believe the prophets will flee to Basra, or flee to Petra. This will happen. This will be, that will be their defended place. God will protect them there. They won't, be, they, they won't believe in Messiah while they're fleeing. They just know what Daniel said. Run for your life when you see the abomination of desolation. They won't believe until the very end. So, Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says this. It describes what happens to the nation of Israel, who this remnant is. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, Yahweh. Two-thirds shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel will buy into Antichrist lie and will die. And then it says this. I will bring one-third through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. Then they will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. This is the new covenant being fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, 31. The one-third that are saved are those who eventually believe in Jesus as their Messiah. So, recap for the test next week, okay? The time of the Gentiles, Babylonian captivity to the second coming of Christ. Jerusalem is still trodden down by the Gentiles today. Fullness of the Gentiles, a set number of Gentiles saved during the church age. Pentecost to the rapture. Let's do that again. The church age, a full, a full number saved from Pentecost to the rapture to the rapture that's right so verse 21 and 22 be fruitful have faith and do not doubt now jesus remember this is his last week on the earth he's days away from the cross at this time he wants his disciples to know that they have the power to do what he did he's going to give them the power he's going to breathe on them the holy spirit and they will get the holy spirit of pentecost and allow them to fulfill this but watch what he says here in 21 and 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, 
Assuredly, I say to you, and it goes into a whole different subject. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree. Now he's speaking to his disciples. But also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and it will be done. They're going to have miracle working powers. The disciples are going to have. They're going to do some incredible things. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, you want to remember that. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So, again, Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for his departure. He's going to be leaving. They're going to have to function on their own. And they need to know that there's power to have faith and do not doubt. The question that I have for you is, and that you must understand is, what is faith? What is faith? Talk about it all the time. Hebrews 11.1 defines it. This is the NIV, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Believe, you know what faith really is? It's believing in God's word, what he says in context. Not out of context. Not just making it say what you want it to say. In context. That is what we are to believe. That is faith. Now, the next statement is this. It'll come up on the screen. It is important for us to believe and trust God in prayer. But I have a question. Does this guarantee that we get what we want? That's correct. The answer is no, and you realize that. Why is that? Well, there's an answer to this. We are too depraved to have what we want power. Just think if you had what we want power. The guy cuts you off in front of you on, on the road. And I have what, what, what I want power? Well, that dude's got a flat tire. He's off to the side. He may get in a wreck. I don't know. <laughs> he may choke on his potato chip. I cannot have that kind of power. I'm too depraved to have that. I'm too depraved. We must realize that. Real faith involves surrendering to God's will. Do you hear that? Real faith demands us. It really, really involves us surrendering to God's will. A few scriptures to help us with this. Matthew 26, 39. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's getting ready to die. He's pleading with God. Three times he prays. Three times he prays. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times. Watch what he says. Oh, my father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Any other way to redeem humanity besides me dying and experiencing separation from you? He knows what's going to happen. It's not just the physical beating and the brutality and the degradation that he went through. It is knowing that sin is going to come upon him and his father and the spirit cannot be involved. He will feel the separation. There's never really a separation, but he's sensing, he's feeling that separation. Let this cup pass from me. And then he says these words, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Matthew 6.10, it's the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' training prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 1 John 5.14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. First John 3.21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing to him. Focus on these words. If our heart does not condemn us, heart aligned with God, that is what we want. My heart aligned with God, and then I am asking according to his will, not my will. His will, not my will. Now, we must have this attitude in prayer, praying in faith. We must believe and trust God. When I'm going into prayer, I'm going into it, guns, well, guns blazing is a bad, I'm going in it with all of my heart, believing that God's going to act in this situation. That's what I'm believing. But I always want 
God's will. Not my, I don't see the whole picture. I don't see what God's doing. He sees it. Job didn't have a clue what was going on. He didn't see the whole picture, and neither do we. Neither do we. So we must remember that. So we pray in faith without doubting. And I think this, God loves it when we ask in faith. He loves it when we do. God does not like it when we ask and doubt that he's able to do this. I'm going to ask you, God, but I don't see this happening. Mm, forget it. Save your, save your words. Don't even go there. Pray in faith, believing. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, give us an example. Watch what he says. James teaching us. My brethren, speaking to the church, count it all joy. Isn't this just great and terrific? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, you know I've taught on this before. That word various is pokleos, like polka dots, different size, different shapes, and they just keep floating into your life. Here comes another one, different size, different shapes. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, patience having its perfect worth, makes you perfect, complete, lacking nothing, makes you mature. The trials are there for a purpose. They're to change us, folks, to make us different, to fully rely on God no matter what. Remember, I will trust in the Lord until I die, no matter what. And then he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, and a lot of times people go right to that verse and forget that it has to do with wisdom in the trials, wisdom in the pain, wisdom in the suffering. If any of you lacks wisdom, let, us ask of, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach. Remember, he's the giving God, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts like a wave that is, that is tossed by the sea to and fro. Let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. Yes, you can. No, you can't. I believe you. I don't believe you. Yes, double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. Folks, when you come to God, you want to ask believing. Put your, put your petition right before him. How it turns out, God's will be done. God's will be done. I can't control God. I don't want to control God. I don't see the whole picture. He does. So I put my trust in him. I will trust in the Lord until I die. The disciples needed to learn this, folks. And we need to learn this today. We need to learn this today. Closing, the cursing of the fig tree has everything to do with fruitfulness, fulfilling your purpose as God intended. What is the cursing all about? Again, it's the generation that rejected Jesus is cursed, they will not enter the messianic kingdom at that time. It was offered. They rejected it. You could have, you could have, this whole thing wouldn't have happened had they received Jesus. But then again, the word wouldn't have went to the Gentiles. It was always God's plan for the Gentiles to get it. So it was God's will. The kingdom is postponed. And again, God has not replaced Israel with the church. The church will take up the mantle of telling the world about Jesus. Instead of that little speck that the word would go out, now God's plan is for the whole world to have embedded within it believers that are telling other people about Jesus and who he really is. The church is a global entity, not a national entity. God will revisit Israel and his people in the tribulation period. And remember, Arnold Fruchtenbaum taught us this, that Jewish people must do two things before Messiah will return, admit their national sin of rejecting Messiah, and plead for him to return. They will not do it all through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, all the way to the very end, Armageddon and that sort of thing. And then finally, they will acknowledge who Jesus is as Antichrist is circling them, coming to destroy them, and Jesus will intervene and save them. Then they will believe. Why is fruit production important to us? Why is it important to me? I must realize this, and we must realize this. True salvation, what true salvation really is, what it looks like. The temple was not accomplishing its purpose. It was fruitless and it was phony. The fig tree was not accomplishing its purpose. It was fruitless and it was phony. And folks, today, there are many people that are Christians, Christians, they put the tag on, Christians that are not accomplishing their purpose and they're phony. 
So many so-called Christians are just not accomplishing their purpose. Now, this statement may be controversial to you, but I believe it to be true. Genuine salvation is accompanied by fruitfulness. Now, look it. You might not be able to see the fruit in somebody else. It might be a little sprig, a little, a little, a little teeny green, nothing fruit. But there has to be something. God might see it. That's why we're not the fruit inspectors. We can't ever tell whose salvation is, who's saved and who's not. You can get an idea by the way people are living and their commitment to God, but we oftentimes make judgments on people we just don't know. We don't know where they are. Only God knows where they are. What is fruit? I'm glad you asked. What is fruit? Fruit is not something that you produce. You're not groaning. You're not straining. Because I'm going to really serve you now, Jesus, and I'm going to pop out a rich fruit. And that's not how it works. Fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit in a person's life as you yield to the Spirit's control of your life. It's a natural outflowing of, of us yielding to God. Fruit is a natural result of abiding in Christ, making your home in Christ. In John 15, 5, Jesus says the perfect, I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the energy source and you are the branches tapped into the vine. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do nothing. You know what fruit looks like? It looks a whole lot like Christian character that we see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When you, this starts happening in your life, because you're dwelling in Christ, making your home in Christ, you start experiencing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When these things start to pop out of you, that is because you have been dwelling in Christ. You're living filled with the Holy Spirit. Fruit. The fruitless, I believe that fruitless, the change, change character, excuse me, I believe that fruitfulness, change character is evidence of genuineness. And remember, Jesus always saves you to be changed. When you came out of the darkness into the light, that is a change. When you change kings from Satan to Jesus, that is a change. When you change destiny from hell to heaven, that is a change. And that is to be lived out in our lives, that change. If it's really happened, at least at some level, it will be lived out. Now, I want you to also think about this. Many who are amongst us today, a myriad of Christians have been hurt by the church. They've been hurt by the church disappointed, and you get the feeling, I can't go through this again. I just can't go through this pain again. I'll simply just withdraw and watch the, my favorite guy on TV. That's what I'll do. And there's a whole bunch of people that are doing that. And folks, that's right where Satan wants you. Disconnected, of no value in the battle. Okay, this is, I'm serious about this. If you've been in church any time, You've had this feeling. You've had this feeling. Are your roots dried up? Are you feeling lifeless? Has your time with the Lord faded? Has your time with God's people faded? Your times of praising God, have they faded? Has a root of disappointment grown in you? Have you had a slow fade in your connection with God? Look at as life goes on, there will be a change in the way that we serve God. I will not be able to serve him in this capacity forever. Someone will take my place. Someone will take my place. But at some level, some way, I'm still called to be in ministry. It doesn't have to be official, but I'm still representing him in my life. Somehow, some way. There is no retirement program in Christianity. There is no retirement. We're involved in something until he comes to get us. Until he comes to get us. Seasons change. Life changes. Ministry can stay changed. Stay at it. Don't shrivel. Don't shrivel. Allow God to lift you out of the miry clay and set you on the rock. 
Allow God to set you on the rock, the Lord Jesus. Though a season of disappointment has flooded your life, and folks, it floods in. May you be like the prophet Habakkuk. Try saying that one, Habakkuk. It all looks so bleak, even hopeless for Habakkuk. Babylon was coming. The nation had fully faded from God. They had become fruitless. And God was sending a judge. Judgment was imminent. Babylon is coming. In the midst of this, Habakkuk had the fruit of patience and the fruit of faith. And he says this in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. The words will come up on the screen. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. This is a man that's looking at everything being lost. Though your 401 is gone, Though your retirement plans are gone. Though they change the money on you and it's all gone. Though the fig tree may not blossom. Though fruit be on the vine. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food. Even if the stuff that you treasured so much. The flocks be cut off from the fold. And there's no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy and the God of my salvation. The attitude in crisis. I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll joy, I'll, I'll joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. You cannot muster this up during the crisis. It must be developed beforehand. You cannot muster it up in a crisis. He will make my feet like deer's feet. Solid, no slipping. And he will make me walk on my high hills. There will be victory soon. Victory soon. The king is coming, folks. I don't care what happens in this world. Remember, you are a called out people. You are a chosen generation. You are the people of God. He is coming for you and things will get better. Victory is coming. May we end our lives, our time here, fervent for God. Don't fade. Don't fizzle. This is not fizzle time. This is not fizzle time. Oswald Chambers puts it perfectly. My utmost for his highest. My greatest for his glory. Jesus is worth it, folks. Our, we give him our best. We give him the best offerings in the Old Testament. The best lamb, the best sheep, the best of everything. We give him the best us that we can give him. And I will trust in the Lord until I die. Until I pass. I want to be fruitful for my king. Fruitful, not fruitless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you love us so much that you died for us. You gave us the Holy Spirit to help us to walk this out. And Lord, may we be men and women of God, men and women of integrity and honor and character. May we not waver with the culture. May we be found faithful when you return for us. And Lord, I don't care if we're going out the natural way or we're going out the surprise rapture way. Either way, we want to be prepared to meet thy God. Help us, Lord, to be prepared to meet you. May we be all out for you until you come for us. Fruitful. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.